Amen. Excited everyone joining us as well online, live, or out in our outdoor venue. So glad that you could make it with us. We're in part one of a brand new series called The Elements of Faith, and I'm really excited to teach this with you guys because I think it's, it's going to be foundational. In the world we're living in today, um, everything is like subjective now, like Truth is relative, and, and it's just subjective reality. And you see this all throughout culture, where, where it's just my truth is different from your truth. It might, might be true to you, it's not true to me. And when you come down to it, it's like, what do the facts say, though? Do the facts matter anymore? Does, like, does truth matter anymore? And so it's this idea of like, man, if we could just get to the elements of a thing, it would just tell us what it was. Like, water is always H2O, right? That's water. I mean... Um, like, you know, male and female, there's two chromosomes, X and Y, all right? So females have two X chromosomes and male have X and Y. This ain't that kind of serious, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying like, like if we just got to the facts of it all, but that's not where people want to live and dwell. It's more of our feelings base and a subjective reality base. And now listen, this thought and our philosophy, our new age philosophy of where truth is relative, has infiltrated what we believe about God, what we believe about his word. And so it's not really, what's the truth? What's the reality of it? So we, we got people that, that believe in God, but, but which God are you believing in? Is it the God of the Bible? Okay, so, so this is like foundation. We're gonna get really foundation. We get to the elements of our faith. This is gonna be a very, I don't know, a doctrinal theological series. I hope you're ready to go to school. This is, we're, gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna be in school for the next four weeks to really get, some, get, get a firm foundation in some um, key elements of your faith that you would understand it. And here's why. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, in the context here, it tells us like, like we need to be equipped. And once we are equipped and mature in Christ, he says, then we will no longer be like children, forever changing our minds about what we believe. <laughs> because someone has told us something different or has cleverly lied to us and made the lie sound like a truth. So we need to guard ourselves from the false teaching uh, and, and faulty thinking and the philosophy of our world to get a firm foundation on the Word of God. So today, like in our world today as well, there's like, there's an, infa an infatuation with celebrities, right? Like we, we, we want to follow them. We want to know what they're doing. We want to know what they're eating. We want to know what they're, what they're wearing, all that stuff, man. Don't act like you don't. You're, you're scrolling through. You're following them. Okay, today we're going to talk about the, the, the biggest celebrity of all. We're going to talk about God. The, 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 the topic today is who is God? Like who, who is he? Now look, God is the most popular person, the most powerful person, the richest person that has ever lived. Now notice though, here's, here's one of the key elements of God before I even get into all the elements I'm going to talk to you about. Notice I said person. God is a person. Okay, he is a, is a, if he wasn't a person, then he would not have a personality, nor could we relate to him personally. God is a person. I want you to let that th sink in. He is a person. Because when we think about God in impersonal terms, we miss the very center of who he is, a personal God. He is, he, God is the person through whom, by whom, in whom all things were created. And we get to know this person through the word of God. We get to know his character. We get to know his attributes, his values, his love, and he invites us to know him. So today we're going to talk about God. We're going we're to discover who God is, the God of the Bible, okay? And, and when we do this, and as we talk about God, 
I really don't want you to receive, let's get in the right posture today because I don't want you to receive this like this is a classroom, like you're just getting knowledge today and, and gonna grow in head knowledge. I, that's not how I want you to receive this. I don't want you to learn more about God. I hope that you can posture yourself that today that you would get a glimpse, listen, to the amazing, awesome awe-inspiring mystery that is God. I hope that today you could sit back and, and as you learn and as we write and take some notes in, that it wouldn't make you just think more, but it would make you go, wow, God, you are big. You are awesome. You are great. There is none like you. I hope after today that you are in, you are in more awe of your God. Amen, somebody? James chapter 2, verse 19, it's a very... Um, I love this verse because a lot of people, Gallup polls today say that I think it's like 82% of people in America believe in God. They believe in God. So here's what James 2.19 says to that. Well, you believe in God, that there's one God. Great. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder at his name. I mean, because there's a lot of people that believe in God, but they don't even shudder. So the demons got them a little bit on, on that, okay? There's no fear of God. There's no fear of the name of God and who God is. So, so we're really gonna, we're gonna get into the word today of like, who is he? Who is this God, there are four key characteristics that are unique to the person of God that we're gonna study today. And then we'll talk about like, what does this mean for us? But let me be clear, you guys, you don't have to understand or even have heard about these characteristics in order to be saved. You, you, you don't. But understanding these truths can be very valuable in you knowing and getting to know God better. Okay, does that make sense, y'all? Okay, so four key characteristics which, as you know me, every one of them has like 10 bullet points. So anyway, here's four. Number one, the first thing that you need to know about God is that God exists as a trinity. As a trinity. How many of you have ever heard that word trinity? Trinity, trinity, yeah, yeah. So there's like a lot of you have heard of, you didn't even raise your hand, but you heard of it. You heard of trinity. But here's the thing about the trinity. As humans, we want solutions, man. We're very solution-oriented. We want to figure it out, you know. Watching a movie, you already are guessing how it's going to end and stuff like that. I got news for you, though. You can't completely figure out God. You cannot wrap your mind around God completely and fully understand. If you could, then you would be as smart as God. But one of the truths about God that probably most strongly demonstrates how we cannot really fathom all there is to God is the truth that he is a trinity. Take a look at this definition here on the screen of the trinity. God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not three gods, nor is he one God acting in three ways. The Bible tells us that God is three different and distinct persons, and that these three different and distinct persons are one in the being of God. So even as I read that, wouldn't you agree that the concept of the Trinity is beyond our ability to understand? Like, it's like, oh, like, oh, you just confused me more, Pastor. Like, I thought you were going to help me understand this a little more. It's like, it's like infinity. We can, we can, like, understand the concept of infinity, but our mind cannot grasp what really is infinity. So there's always going to be a bit of mystery when trying to grasp the greatness of God, but you don't need to understand it to accept it. Our belief in the Trinity isn't a matter of human understanding. It's not a matter of philosophy. It's, it grows from God's revelation of himself through the word of God. The doctrine of the Trinity can't be pointed to one verse. In fact, there's not one 
The Trinity is not found, that word is not found in the Bible at all. It's not one verse. It actually grows from the interpretation of the entire scriptures that reflect his nature. It's kind of like, it's been, it's been likened to a lot of things. They all fell to some extent, but let me kind of, some people say it's kind of like the shamrock or the four-leaf clover. You know, you got, you got three leaves. It is, it is a clover, a shamrock. Uh, although you take one of those clovers out and it's still, it's still a shamrock. It's just a piece of it, right? Or the one I like the most is Neapolitan, Neapolitan ice cream, right? You got three elements of that thing. It's all it's Neapolitan ice cream. All of it together is ne- Neapolitan. Or the one that probably is the most popular is water, right? So water is H2O. It's H2O. But it exists in three forms. You can, you can have ice. You can have vapor. You can have liquid. In fact, there is this what's called the, in physics the triple point of water, where it can, water can exist in all three elements all at one time as ice, vapor, and, and water. They call it the triple point of, of water. But it is always, whether it is in any form, liquid, ice, or vapor, it is always H2O, okay? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are always God. And God wants you to understand this truth because he wants you to know him for who he truly is. There's an image that's been used for probably centuries here to explain God. I'll throw it up on the screen here, this image of the Trinity. Because what is the, what, let me explain kind of what the Trinity is and what it isn't, okay? The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Neither is the Son the Holy Spirit. Yet the Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. And the Father is God. You might look at that and go, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's a mystery. Okay? So your mind cannot comprehend. I get it. I get it. But this is not a contradiction. It is a mystery. Let's look at some of the scriptures about the nature of God. As I said, it's not one verse. It's a lot of verses. So let me show you like, why we, we believe that God is triune, that this is his nature. This is who God, the God of the Bible, the God you and I serve. This is who he is. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 tells us the Lord our God, the Lord is what? He's one. So there's not two gods, three gods, five gods. God is one, and that teaching is at the core of the Old Testament that God is one. In the New Testament, he shows us even more revelation that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit are called God. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Look at this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, everyone accepts that the Father is God. Yeah, God is God. Everyone accepts that, but Jesus is also called God. Look at uh, with me, John 20, 28. Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't rebuke him. He didn't correct him. This is just one of the many places in your New Testament that Jesus is called God or is worshiped as, as God, and he accepts it and even calls himself equal with God. Look in the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? The word was God. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. See that the Father is God. Now Jesus is God, but the Spirit is also called God in the Scripture. Acts chapter 5, look at this one instance, and I could give you a whole bunch, but I don't have time to give you a whole bunch. I'll just give you a little bit of each. Acts chapter 5 says, Peter talking to Ananias, he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he tells him, You've lied, you haven't lied to men, you actually lied to God. He's equating the Holy Spirit to 
God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. But check this out. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct from each other. They are separate. If they weren't separate, when Jesus was like talking to his Father in heaven, he would have been talking to himself the whole time when he was praying. That just is a weird picture. But we can see throughout the New Testament, there are instances where all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are distinct, separate, and even in one place. The baptism of Jesus is one of those examples in Matthew chapter 3. Look what it says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened up. And he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice of, from heaven, the Father says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we see in one place distinct persons Father in heaven speaking to the Son, the Son coming out of the water and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. So as we look at the entire scriptures, the conclusion of the totality of scripture is that God is one in being that exists in three persons. You just put it together. First, God is one, right? Second, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. So add that all up, you get the Trinity. God is one in three persons. Now, why is this important? Because anyone who denies the truth of the Trinity is denying one of these truths about God. We're den- you're either denying that God is one or denying that Jesus, the Spirit, or the Father are not God or they're denying that they are distinct in persons. See, false teachers try to use human reasoning to disprove the Trinity, but the truth of God's fact is um, God is one. And, and, and people would rather have a God that makes more sense to them than to simply believe what the Bible tells us about God. But who said God had to make logical sense to you? In fact, I would think that if God is who he says he was, then he could not be comprehended by human logic. Okay? As humans, I think there's this tendency to minimize the greatness of God to a level that we understand, to a level that we're comfortable with, and, and we bring them down. And I would just, please, 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 don't pull down God to the level of your limitation. I encourage you to let this study today, let this, like, let it overwhelm you, like in the best way possible. When you get to know God more and as you study the nature of God and the character, it should overwhelm you. He is overwhelming. God is, which leads to the second characteristic, God is absolutely sovereign. God is sovereign. He does not need to consult with or depend on anybody, nor does he have to answer to anyone about the decisions he makes. He is sovereign. Colossians chapter 1.16 says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is sovereign. Now, that's a word we don't use very much today, but we're going to basically means that he is in absolute charge. He is in, he is in charge. He doesn't answer nobody. Like a manager has a CEO, the CEO has the board, the board has shareholders. We don't, we don't understand this concept so much in our American mindset, but he is in absolute charge. Now, does God's sovereignty though mean that we're just pawns on God's great big chessboard? No. God is able to be in absolute control and yet still give us genuine choice. What makes God's sovereignty effective is that his will is ultimately done, sometimes along with and sometimes in spite of our free choices. Now, this isn't a sermon about free choices. That would have to be another, another topic. This is about, about God. But what does it mean that God is sovereign? Listen, 
it, it does not, when we say God is sovereign, like he's in charge, we're not referring to his attitude, we're referring to his nature, okay? So he's not someone with a dominating personality. He is absolutely dominating. God's not controlling. He's not some controlling person. He's in absolute control. He doesn't need to take charge. He's always in charge. Okay, so it's not his personality or his attitude. It's who he is. Here's what it means that God is sovereign. Write these down. He is greater than and exists above his creation. The, the theological term is transcendent. He is transcendent. A word kind of connected with this that some of you may know is omnipresent. You may want to write that down somewhere next to that, omnipresent. It means he is everywhere at all times, above, before, and in all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 27 says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that we've built. Ephesians 4, 6 says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all, he is transcendent, meaning that he is greater than time. He is greater than place. He is greater than, than my circumstance. Psalms, the Psalm tells us that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that he has always existed. But not only that, he like always, not only he always will and always has existed. Do me a favor, and just for a moment, I want you to like look at this dot. I put a dot on the screen. You can see it over here or right here. Do me a favor. Just stare at the dot for just a moment, okay? Look at that dot for a second. I want you to understand this. God can look at all of human history, human future, just as easy as you can look at that dot. He can take it in in a glimpse Everything that has ever been or will be, every day, every life, every thought, in one moment you take it in the glance of that dot, God can comprehend it all. He is transcendent, which means uh, nothing surprises God. God is never caught off guard. You never like slip up or make a mistake and God goes, oh, dang, I'm gonna have to write a new story now. Okay, let's rewrite the chapter. You done messed it up. You don't catch God off guard. You don't. God never says, oops, or dang it. <laughs> no, he's, God is he's, he's always, the psalmist says, whether I sit down or get up, you are there. You know my thoughts before I even think them. He sees it all. He knows it all. Write it down like this, part of his sovereignty. He is all sufficient. He's all sufficient, meaning, man, he doesn't need anything. He knows it all. Another, okay, another theological term connected to all sufficiency is omniscient. Omniscient. It means all knowing, like he knows everything. He never needs permission and he never needs help. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, look what it says. And he is not served by human hands. And if he needed anything, he. Like rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. It's important to remember this. As much as God loves us, he doesn't need us. Never has, never will. He didn't need to create us because he was lonely or lacking in some way. Like, oh, I'm really bored. I really need community. I need peace. Let me just make some people that I can hang out with or control or manipulate. No, he created us not out of his own lack, but out of his love. He doesn't choose to use us because he couldn't do it without us. Don't make the mistake that just because God cho chooses to work through you, that he is limited by your ability, your time, or your yes. 
God is not limited by anything in any way. He just chooses to use us out of his grace. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me this way? Paul is reminding us that God does not need our help or advice. He doesn't need it. Sometimes we're tempted to play armchair quarterback. You ever do that when you're watching the, you're like, man, I should have called this play. You know, you're yelling at the TV, at the coach, or, or the quarterback. Sometimes we try to play that way with, with God. Oh, man, God, if you would have just done this, you could have diverted the natural disaster, God. Or, man, if you would have not let that government party in control, things would have been much better. God, man. And we think this way, and it's like we're saying, if I were God, <laughs> things would have worked out better. Are you kidding me? You can't even manage your own household, let alone the universe. What does it mean? What does it mean? He's, he is transcendent. He is all-sufficient. Write this down. He is almighty. Almighty. Here's another theological term that's connected to that, omnipotent. It means all-powerful. He is almighty. He is all-power. Psalm 147. He counts the stars and calls them by name. How great is our Lord. His power is absolute. His understanding, look what he says, is beyond your ability to comprehend it. He is almighty. In this world we're living in today, in the age, we got all these like online calendars and apps. You got Drive and Google Drive and Dropbox and Evernote. You got all, you think that we'd have our life under control. You know what I mean? And every now and then I'm tempted to like download the new app that's like, do this and your life is going to be so much more organized. And <laughs> have you ever noticed that God's plan doesn't fit in your daily planner? Like, like sometimes he surprises us and often he's doing something bigger than we could ever imagine. But there are four words that you need to know you should never forget about God and this, this. God is in control. God is in. He is sovereign, meaning he is in control. Look, when you recognize God's sovereignty as the most important part of your day, your, your daily plans, or even your future goals, when you recognize the sovereignty of God, you're going to see some amazing things start to happen in your life. Annoying distract, uh, distractions start to turn into anointed directions. An impossible situation turns into an opportunity of faith. Even the feeling that your world is falling apart can turn into the assurance that God is at work. Even in the most difficult situations, God is in control. Third, characteristic about God I want you to know today is that God is perfectly moral. Perfectly moral. Many years ago, we'd say at church, God is good, and the people would go, all the time. And then you go, and all the time? Yeah, see, some of y'all have been there, okay? So, so here's Luke chapter 8, 18, 19 tells us no one is good except God alone. Like truly good, more wonderfully good than we could ever imagine. But even as I say God is perfectly moral, I feel like we have our own moral compass and our own thoughts of morality that we filter in. So sometimes, like even as I say God is moral, some of you are probably thinking something similar to the Boy Scout helping a grandma across the street or something like that. That is a moral good. But God is so much better and bigger than, than that has more to do. Like, like it's, 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 God is his... His morality is bigger and our current thoughts of morality, and this has happened all throughout history, humans have always taken their current thoughts of morality and infused, like put that on God and projected that on God. And it's no better like picture of that than 
uh, the Greek gods of Jesus' day. They were gods who were seen as jealous and angry and lustful and selfish, just as people were, just with a lot more power. And that just wasn't with the Greeks. That is still happening today. Today in our society, we as human beings, we, we're projecting onto God a morality that is more like our morality of our day. So the, the God that people have in their mind today, what morality is, is a God that's non-judgmental. God of love. Just doesn't, he just don't hurt nobody, don't do nothing wrong. He just, he just wants to love you and be good to you. And he's Santa Claus in the sky, man. He just... <laughs> And, and we try to make God in our own image, but listen, we, we don't remake God in our image. God made us in his image. We got it backwards. We got that backwards. And the more we look at who God has revealed himself to be in the word of God, the more he transforms our hearts and our character into his image. So let's look at who he is in his morality, because this is, this is an important aspect of God, because there are certain aspects of God in his characteristic that are his and his alone, they are unique to him, that you and I cannot comprehend or assume within ourselves. So I cannot be like God in his transcendence. I cannot be like God in, in his almighty omniscience, his omnipotence. His, I, can't, I can't represent that characteristic of God, but in his morality, the Bible says that the spirit of the living God lives in you. And that in his morality, in his goodness, these are expressions that can dwell within us. In his morality. So what is it? What is, what is his perfect morality look like? Write these down. Number one, I'm gonna go over these real quick. He acts in holiness. He acts, so he is holy, meaning he is separate, that he is distinct, that he has perfect integrity. Now, holy doesn't mean he's picky or judgmental. It just means he is separate. He's set apart. Uh, Isaiah chapter six, I love this, verse one through three. Look what this says. It says, in, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So he had a vision of God in the temple, and above him were seraphim, which are angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with another two, they were flying. And these majestic beings these creatures, they were calling to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. Now your life at times may seem routine. It may seem ordinary and that's not true. The Bible says that God dwells in you, that you live, listen to me, child of God, you live constantly in the presence of a holy God. I wonder how much your life would change from ordinary and routine and mundane if you just recognize this fact, if you created a practice, maybe later today, when you get up tomorrow, when you step into your office, when you come home from your workplace, if you were to tell yourself, I'm living in the presence of a holy God, how that would change your life, your day, that God is holy and you live and dwell in his presence every day. Amen. He acts and Holiness. He relates in compassion. That's his, his, who he is. He is compassionate. God cares for you. The Bible says that God, that you can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That's the whole reason why you can come and pray and ask. You're not bothering God. He wants to know. He cares for you. James chapter 5, 11 says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the beautiful thing about God. He can be all everywhere at all time, take it all in, know everything, but not be bogged down by it. 
See, if you and I, if we were to know everything about everyone at all times, we would want to kill people. Or run away or be like, I'm out of here. Y'all suck. You know what I mean? But God is, is perfectly good. He's compassionate. He's full of it. He never drains out of it when you need compassion, when you need mercy, when you need care. He never is lacking. He is constantly, consistently, always full of compassion. It's who he is. His faithfulness can be trusted. Look, people will let you down. People have let you down and failed you. God never will. This truth may be the truth that gets you through this week. Hebrews chapter 10, 23 tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promised is what? He's faithful. He can't be trusted. He'll never let you down. It's who he is in his morality. He is faithful and therefore can be trusted. His goodness is unequaled. He desires to do good things in your life more than you can comprehend or imagine, even in the difficult things, even in your trials, even in the letdowns, even in your mistakes. God wants to turn those things around and make them good. That's who he is. He is unequaled in his goodness. Psalm 34, verse 8, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe you haven't tasted it yet. Just take a bite, man. Just come on in and you're going to see God is good. Blessed is the one who runs to him when they need safety, when they need encouragement. Blessed is that person who finds their refuge in this good God. It's who he is. He is good. His justice is impartial and fair. See, when it seems to you that others are getting away with things or, or getting undeserved blessings, don't fall into the victim mentality. Don't fall into the poor me syndrome. In the end, listen to me, in the end, God's justice will prevail. Okay, He is perfectly justice. He is impartial. He is fair. He is before all things and through all things. And maybe as you take a snapshot in this season, what you don't understand is God is not limited to this season. He is already at the end and already judged. Impartial, fair, just. Romans chapter 9, verse 14, the apostle Paul is kind of playing this argument about God's justice, and he says, what shall we say then to the people that are getting the blessings and getting promotions, and is God unjust? And he goes, no, not at all. There is a time where he's going to bring it into account. His justice, he's perfect, impartial, fair. Write down this one. He reacts to sin in wrath. Well, God hates sin in his morality. Of course he has wrath against sin. He sees it for what it really is. He sees how it destroys our families and our life and our marriages and our He sees what it's doing to our children. He sees what it's doing to He sees what it's doing with our relationship with him and how it separates us from a God who just wants to love us. Of course he hates sin. And he responds in wrath. Now this is some of y'all don't know this like like you you think that there's a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. This is the same God. The wrath he showed in the Old Testament, you're like, well, that must be a different God. No, his wrath was satisfied on Jesus Christ. His wrath against sin. Okay, I'm going to, and that's a whole, next week I'm going to talk to you about that. I'm going to talk to you about the, the doctrine of salvation. And why was it satisfied and what was satisfied upon you? You just need to know these things, that you don't have to experience the wrath of your sins. It is fully satisfied. And I'll talk to you about that. But look what it says in Romans chapter 2. This is New Testament, Romans chapter 2. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up, what does it say? This is the New Testament. Because we are stubborn and unrepentant, we're like, Mm-mm, no, that's not, I'm not going to go there. There is still wrath that we're storing up against ourselves for the day of God's wrath. When the righteous judgment will be revealed. He's talking about the judgment day, the end of all things, which, by the way, our October series is going to be about life after death. We're going to talk about what happens. What happens immediately after die? What is heaven? What is hell like? What's the judgment seat look like? We're going to go through the scriptures and look at all that. That'll be for another time, but just know it's coming. That day, for every single one of us, he's talking about that day right there. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, they're going to get eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You know why? Because God is perfectly moral, and he reacts to sin, which destroys, kills our purpose, our families, our lives, our world. He reacts to sin and wrath. But not only that, he is love. He is love. Now, if you take any one of these, these elements of his morality, and you just take one of them, you're getting an inaccurate picture of who God is. You have to take on, in all of these elements, they make, it's, it would be like saying, you know, like we talk H2O. You can't just take one of the elements. You got to take all the elements to make water. This is who God is. People today want to take just God is love and leave out all the other elements, namely that he reacts to sin and wrath. No, no, no. God wouldn't do that because he is love. No, he, ha- he is love, but he also is, is perfectly moral, justice, true. The greatest expression of love is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that God gave his son. Okay, that's, that's the greatest expression of love. First John chapter 4, 16 says, God is love. It's who he is. It's his nature. It's not what he has for you. It's who he is. He is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, God in them. Now, again, there are attributes of God that you and I cannot, we cannot emulate. We cannot have within ourselves. But these ones we can. And you know how God has created. God wired us and designed us in such a way that we actually can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We can. Like this can happen. In fact, it it can happen in more ways than you're thinking of. It not only can happen being transformed in his image, you can be transformed in another image. And here's, here's how it happens. This is how God wired you. We become like those we spend the most time with. Okay, so if you want to reflect the nature of God, you need to spend more time with God. If you're hanging out with critical people, I promise you, you're going to become a criticizer and critical person. If you're hanging out with people that they're always looking just to make more money and, and looking for the side hustle and looking to, looking to get their, I don't know, six figures or a million dollars, and always looking at that, looking at that, then I promise you, you're going to be a money chaser. You're going to become whoever you spend most time with. So as you look even at the the moral attributes of God, that God wants to dwell within you and shine through you, I want you to do do this. As you look at those, those attributes, do me a favor. Will you circle the one that you feel like, God, I need you here. I need, I need your character. I need your morality. I need your goodness. I need, I need you here. Maybe you would circle like that his, the goodness. Like, man, I just, I need that. Or maybe faithfulness. You're like, I need, I need to see God's faithfulness in my heart. Or maybe it's compassion. You're like, man, I just need God's compassion to shine. I'm not compassionate. And I need God to just touch that area and to, to live through me in that, in that area. I need his love. Will you just circle one of those? I bet none of you are going to circle 
wrath, though. <laughs> here's, here's the thing, though. I, if we were just to see sin the way God sees them, I promise it would, it, would change the what, it would change what you're doing. Some of us need to circle that. We need to be like, God, I need, I need to have that. I need to react to sin and wrath. If you just saw sin the way God sees it as destructive and divisive and, 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 and it's not actually the thing that's going to give you pleasure or hope or fulfillment, if you just saw it, some of you need to circle that thing because you have a longstanding sin issue and you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and see that sin differently the way God sees it. Y'all with me still today? Okay, the last attribute of God we're going to talk about today is that God is relational. So he's not only like transcendent in all things, above all things, and through all things, he's also imminent, meaning he's right here. He's not only almighty and all powerful, he is fully present that God desires to have a relationship with us. He's not just the leader of a religious organization. The Bible says his, that the, the, the term he would like to, the relationship that he would like to have with you is, is based upon a father. That's what he calls himself, a father. And my deepest joy is to connect you to a father in heaven. Jesus' favorite term for God was father. It was actually the secret of his prayer life. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, how do you pray? Teach us how to pray, because the way you do it is different, man. There's power. There's the way you pray. And Jesus gave him the secret, and the secret was actually right there in the very beginning of this prayer. He said, hey, pray like this, our Father. This is how you need to start your conversation with God. This is how you're to relate to God. This is, maybe this is a term that you're more familiar with now, but in their day, they didn't call God Father. He was not father. You didn't even say his name because his name was too holy. Jehovah, you could not say his name because that's too holy. But Jesus changed that. He flipped that. He said, no, no, this is how God wants to be known. If you want to pray like I pray and connect to God like I connect, you need to talk like this. Our father in heaven. See, God is not distant. He's near. God is not like, like watching your actions from afar. He's intimately involved in every detail of your life. Romans chapter 8 says it like this, that God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We have a spirit living in us. We know who he is and we know who we are. Look what he says, father in children. You're not who that, pe that person or you're not who they said you were. God sees something different in you. Now, it's not God and servant, it's father and children. You are his son. You are his daughter. And we know if we ever get that kind of relationship, look what he says. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. God has got great things to you. And he wants to, he doesn't just, he's not just this big God that exists in this, in the universe. He wants to be personally involved as a father in your life. Now, what does that mean? All these like characteristics of God. What does that mean for us? Just really quickly, let me give you three things of what it means. It means you can trust God. Like, you can, you can trust him. He's like, look, this world you can't trust. There's a lot of uncertainty in this world. There's relationships and people and your career and your health. You can't trust any of that stuff. And the problem is many of us have attached our heart to the things of this world. So when those things fail us, and they will, and those people leave us, because eventually they will. And I'm not talking, I'm not saying of divorce or something, but they're going to get, they're, everyone's going to die someday. They're going to leave. Everything fails. Everything falls. The problem with us attaching our heart to it is when it fails, so do we. What you need to know is this God 
who is above all things, who is transcendent and imminent and sovereign and in control. He can be trusted and the only one that can be trusted with your heart. He can. You can trust God. Here's the second thing you need to know about this God. You can represent this God. This is the whole reason why God deposited his spirit inside of you that you would represent God on earth. If you follow that, the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how does that happen? How does his will get accomplished on earth as it is in heaven? Through you. Through his spirit living inside of you. You bring heaven to earth. You can represent the character, the nature of this almighty, sovereign, loving God. Lastly, you can relate to God. This God that we study, that we serve, that we read about, he's he's not just like a distant existence, a a, a thought or a spirit or a ghost. No, no, no. You can have a relationship with this God. And the relationship that he wants to have with you is a relationship as a father and a daughter. A father and a son. And some of you are here today and maybe you know, you know a lot of the stuff I even talked about. You have, like, yeah, yeah, there's some of the stuff that you're, you're aware of. But you're, you're, you're not in relationship with God. There's still a distance. There's, it might be a religious relationship. It may be something that you just know about God, but he's not father to you. And maybe it's that you're vision of God has been tainted by the fathers of this world. You're seeing your father God through a lens that is, that is human nature. And what you need to know is that, hey, our father in heaven, God, is not, a, is not like the fathers of our world. He is the perfection of our fathers in this world. He is the perfection and personification of Father. And he wants, to, he wants to have a relationship with you. Some of you, I think you're, if you describe your relationship with God, it would be distant. But today I would love to encourage you to close that gap and to not just know about God, but to know him personally. It's who he is. It's how he wants to relate to us. Can I pray that for you? With every head bowed, every eye closed all over this place, can I just pray that with you? Some of you are here today, and maybe you've never acknowledged God as your Father. You've never, maybe you're living your own life, you're doing your own thing, and you sense the, that you're far away from where God wants you. Now look, the, the Bible says that, that Jesus died for your sins. He says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. That's it. That wrath that God has towards sin is satisfied completely on him. You don't need to experience it. You don't need to experience any distance. Today, through Jesus, you can be made a son and daughter of God and get a fresh start. For some of you, you need to make that for the very first time, that decision. For others of you, maybe you know a lot about what we're talking about, but that relationship isn't there. Knowledge, yes. Religion, sure. But relationship, no, you know it. And I'd love to just help you make that decision today. To not just know about God, to not just treat this thing like a religious experience, but a relationship with a God who wants to personally and intimately be involved in your life. With every head bowed and eye closed, if that's you, whether you're in the first time or you need to close the gap and 
relate to him the right way as your father today, I'd love to pray with you. Here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to have you come up to the front or single you out or anything like that, but right where you are, I'd love to pray for you. I'm going to count to three in a moment, and I'd love for you to lift up your hand. If you're ready for a fresh start, you're ready to close the gap, come on, today's the day. One, two, three, lift up that hand right now. Today, I surrender. I give you my life, God. Come on all over. Yes, 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 yes. Amen, amen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, yes. Amen. Thank you, God. Go ahead and put your hands down for a moment. I'll help you out with some words to say, a prayer. You could pray something like this. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Today I surrender. I give you control. I declare you're my Lord, my Savior, my God. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. God, I pray over every person in this place that you would guard our hearts and minds against false teaching and faulty thinking. God, that we would have our our faith built on a firm foundation, that we wouldn't be satisfied with just knowing about you and doing religious things and church things and faith things, but that we would walk in relationship with you to know you, God, and that this knowledge of you would fill us with awe, with wonder, to, to be in the presence of a holy God living and dwelling within me. God, fill us again with wonder, with awe. Oh, that you are majestic, mysterious. You are good. We thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Come on, give God some praise if you receive that today. Amen.